Hi sisters and welcome to Preceded by Chaos where there will be conversations of topical issues, points of view and real life experiences. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land, the Bunyurong people, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. So it's been a while since I've done an episode, but I've researched for this thoroughly, so I hope you find it interesting. I do have to give a trigger warning that this episode does cover content including abortion, missing children and murder. So I'm going to be talking about the case of Kelly Lane. And she is someone who is currently serving an 18-year prison sentence for three counts of perjury and the murder of her newborn baby in 1996. And she will be eligible for parole in 2023, so very soon. Um, And I became aware of this case when I watched the documentary on Netflix, Exposed by Kelly Lane, about two years ago. And I was obsessed with it. I made all my friends watch it. Um, And with, you know high-profile true crime stories. They're often very unbelievable. Um, And this happened in the early 2000s, so I was too young to remember. But um, as soon as I saw this documentary and I listened to the Red Handed podcast as well, uh, which I highly recommend, um, I am obsessed with missing children cases. There's just something about them because, you know, adults can go missing. They can start up a new life if they're escaping from a domestic violence situation Or if they're unhappy with their life, they can move country and set up a new life. Whereas with children, you know that foul play is involved because kids have no means of supporting themselves. They don't have a driver's license. They can't drive. They don't have any money. They can't work because it's illegal for kids to work. So you know they can't just start up a new life. You know there has to be more to the story. Um, And this case is especially interesting as it's laced with elite athletes hidden pregnancies, promiscuity. Um, Yeah, so I hope you enjoy this one. So who is Kelly Lane? So Kelly Lane was born in Manly in Sydney to Robert and Sandra or Sandy Lane. Now, Manly is a bit of an insular peninsula where everybody knows each other. It's a bit of a breeding ground for gossiping. And in the documentary, Kelly's friend Natalie says that you learn to keep secrets from a young age. Now, something about Manly is it's a very sporty community. A lot of elite athletes have come from Manly, Olympic swimmers like Johanna Griggs, Ironmen and rugby players. Now, Robert Lane, who's Kelly's father, he actually was a professional rugby player. He played for Manly and he was also a very good surfer, very involved with the Manly Surf Lifesaving Club, as were uh, the rest of the family. And he actually in later life became a police officer and he became the local uh, police officer at the Manly Police Station. And then he became the coach for the Manly rugby um, team. So they were a well-respected family in Manly. Everybody knew who they were. Um, And Kelly was a bit of a daddy's girl. She was very athletic, as you would imagine. She uh, did surf lifesaving from a young age. She got into water polo, uh, much to her mum's delight because her mum was into water polo. And um, she was very popular as a result. Everybody knew who she was. She was the daughter of, you know, Robert Lane, who was hero worshipped being the rugby coach. As a lot of people know, Sydney is very into rugby. That's what they do on a Sunday. Everyone goes and watches the local rugby team. And when it comes to Kelly's mum, Sandy, 
Now, it's really hard to describe her personality if you haven't seen the documentary, but what comes to mind when I watched it and the few interviews that I saw of her, she comes across like she has narcissistic personality disorder. Now, look, I'm no psychiatrist or psychologist, so please don't come for me, but she's just very passive aggressive, just straight up aggressive at times. Um, she comes across as very defensive and just nasty, to be honest. Um, the documentary, the journalist who's running the documentary is there to actually try and help find her missing granddaughter. And she's just very tough. Like you wouldn't want to mess with her. She seems like the kind of mum that's jealous of her daughter in a way. Like the type of mum that would go out with Kelly and her mates on a night out and try and be funnier than Kelly, try and compete with Kelly. Um, and it's clear that she's a bit of a, I don't know, like she, as the, the wife of the rugby coach, I think she had like events and parties and stuff at the rugby club and you had to be someone who she liked to get invited. Like she's very queen bee type energy. And what is clear though, however, from the sit down interviews that Robert and Sandy did in the documentary is that they have very poor communication skills. It seems like communication was not a priority in this family. Um, at one point, Sandy actually starts to tear up and Robert says this to her. This is an exact quote. He says, yeah, well, just settle down, Dal. You've got to go and get another Kleenex. Go on, you can go. That just highlights really poor communication. First of all, he's shutting down her emotions straight away, saying don't cry, don't show emotion, like it's a negative thing to do. And second of all, he's giving her permission to get up and go and get a tissue. Like she needs permission from her husband to be able to do that. And I think that just really gives us an insight into the dynamic of this family. Um, anyway, so growing up, Kelly was involved with lots of sports clubs. Like I said, she was attractive. She was popular. She was one of the popular girls. It's very clicky in Manly. And when she's 16, she starts dating Aaron Tyak. Now, Aaron is a um, surfy guy. He's a surf lifesaver at Manly Beach. Again, popular. Kelly and Aaron just go out on the piss a lot, etc. And he actually features in the documentary. And he... In the documentary, he looks like he's been through some traumatic shit and he's hit the hard stuff as a result. Like, I'm sure he has. Like, when he's talking, you can tell he's someone that's probably... Life has not treated him well. I think as a surf lifesaver, he probably saw some, some grim things. But anyway, he talks to the journalists in the documentary and he says uh, when they were 17, she... Um, came into his room one time and told him that she was pregnant. So this is in 1992. And they both agree that they're too young to have a baby. And so Aaron drives her to the Manly Ferry where she goes off, leaves Manly to have a termination because, like I said, they're well known in the community and her parents have high expectations of her and her sibling and they that probably wouldn't have fitted in with their expectations of her. Anyway, he says when he picked her up uh, from the ferry that she was like a different girl, that she was devastated and something in her changed um, through that experience. And look, she's 17. At that age, you don't have a whole lot of tools in your tool belt to deal with trauma or challenging emotions. 
And especially it's just her and Aaron that know, like she hasn't confided in any of her family. Um, her mum seems especially like someone she couldn't come forward and have this conversation with. Anyway, they move on with life. Um, in 1994, um, as a result of the trauma they've both been through, Aaron and Kelly decide to go separate ways. Around the time that they're breaking up though, however, she finds out she's pregnant again. And this time she decides not to tell Aaron. Um, so he has no recollection of this in the documentary. It's news to him. And again, she goes to an abortion clinic. Uh, but this time she's actually 20 weeks pregnant. So this is what we call a late term abortion. And it's a, it's a two stage procedure. And in the documentary, Kelly's actually, she speaks in the documentary and she recalls how this is a very traumatic event. Obviously, anyone that's gone through this will know you have to stay at the clinic or in hospital for for a while. Um, but she also says she feels relief when the process is over. She feels like she could just put it out of her mind and move on. And she is very good at compartmentalizing. That becomes very clear in the in the documentary that she uses compartmentalizing as a coping strategy. So she'll put something in in a box and just forget about it. And look, it's not a bad coping strategy, but I think when you do put something traumatic like that just out of your mind, you do need to be able to come back it and address come back and address it properly at some point. Otherwise, it's just going to fester there. Um, but Kelly attributes being able to compartmentalize in the documentary uh, to being coached in competitive sport from a young age. And she even says, you know, look, I, w I was being trained as a young athlete and you had to be able to put what you were feeling in a box away. If you were in pain, if you were fatigued, if you were emotionally hurting, you had to just put that aside and do what the coach wanted you to do. Um, so she moves on with her life. She's very involved in water polo. Um, she's part of this mean girls type clique that was was happening in water polo and she likes to party. She parties hard. Uh, in the documentary, the former ACT women's water polo coach, Anne Bain, says sort of their mantra in the manly water polo team was play hard, drink hard. And in Australia, among sports clubs especially, there's a very big drinking culture and she, Kelly admits this. She's like, I was out drinking a lot and probably not using the pill correctly and sort of attributes that to all of these pregnancies. And look, she does need to take responsibility at some point, but I do sort of agree that people aren't, especially young women, aren't educated on how to use the pill correctly. Like probably no one's told her you need to take it at the same time every day. Um, but yeah, so they have a, they play dirty, the, the women's water polo team in, um, in Manly. Uh, and then in 1995, she makes the New South Wales state water polo team and she starts dating Duncan Gillies. And he is the next big thing in Manly. He plays for the Manly rugby team and he's a bit of a hot shot around town. And they're sort of like this golden couple, I guess. Um, but towards the end of 1995, Kelly is pregnant again. So she's now 19 and this is the third pregnancy. Having had the, uh, last termination being very traumatic for her, 
she doesn't want to go through with that again so she just decides to keep the baby but she continues seshing like she'll she continues going out and drinking with the girls the water polo girls and playing water polo and look water polo is a tough sport like it is it is physically demanding and it is the those girls play dirty so but she just pretends like she's not pregnant it's almost like living a double life she's like yes I'm pregnant but I'm also going to continue playing water polo and not tell anyone about it so she doesn't tell Duncan she doesn't tell her parents she doesn't tell the water polo girls she just pretends like she's not um and Anne Bain who is the team manager at this point for the Australian squad says that in 1995 some of the girls from Kelly's water polo team came up to her and said we think Kelly Lane's pregnant so she told Bruce Folson who was the coach at the time this is what I've heard that Kelly Lane is pregnant and you know Kelly's mum at this stage is the team um, manager for Kelly's team and she's very trying to uphold this reputation and she claims in the documentary she didn't know but it was clear in the documentary that if any of the girls had dared to raise any questions about Kelly or her body changing that it was just shut down and you were almost like shunned from the the click type of thing um and look everyone in the documentary bar from a couple of the water polo girls claim they didn't know they couldn't tell and with your first baby I can believe that I can believe a 19 year old who's very athletic and this is her first full-term baby I can agree maybe it was hard to tell that she was pregnant I I get that one look as a midwife first time mums the bump doesn't start to show until really late on in the pregnancy but in March 1995, she's now nine months pregnant and she's playing in the New South Wales Water Polo Grand Final <laughs> at nine months pregnant. The team ends up losing and they go out to the pub, as per usual, uh, in Balmain for a drink. But around 9pm, they notice that Kelly's missing. And the girls are thinking this is quite unusual because, like we said, Kelly was a big drinker. They used to call her keg on legs. And, but actually what had happened was her waters had broke at the pub and she'd gone into labour. So she went into Balmain Hospital and so nobody knows that she, she's pregnant, right? She goes into Balmain Hospital. She hasn't received any medical care for this pregnancy because she's just acted like it, it hasn't, it wasn't. She was just in denial. And she just tells them a whole bunch of lies. She tells them she's from Perth. And that she's only in Sydney for three weeks, which I don't know. The hospital, you would have thought like a 19 year old just showing up by herself saying she's from like, why has she come to Sydney around her due date? I don't know. But anyway, she gives birth to a live born female and the, the girls sort of have a bit of an inkling. Like I said, that she's she's pregnant and they start ringing around the hospitals and one of them confirms, yes, Kelly Lane came in here and, and had a baby. Anyway, the next day was her 20th birthday and it would have looked odd if she was just gone missing for her 20th birthday. So she asks the hospital if she can have a day pass out 
This is very unusual for a hospital to give someone who's just given birth a day pass out, but they do. And she leaves the baby in the hospital and she goes out for the day. And what she does is she celebrates her 20th birthday with her family and friends like nothing has ever happened, goes on the sesh and then comes back to the hospital early in the morning. Um, and she says at this point, her biggest motivating factor in pretending like she hadn't just had a baby and lying to everyone was this fear of her parents finding out. So she's just so scared of her parents finding out that she's willing to leave a newborn baby in hospital, go out on the sesh and come back. Um, anyway, she puts the baby up for adoption and this process takes months and through the adoption process, she had to remain involved with the baby and meet with the adoptive parents. And she describes this as very traumatic, not having anyone to confide in. But anyway, the baby ends up being put up for adoption. And again, she sort of just like pops that in a box, compartmentalizes that and moves on with her life. Again, like a relief. Okay, that happened. You know, I'm going to move on. So in 1996, it's Kelly's 21st birthday and she has a big piss up for her birthday but what nobody at the birthday realizes is that she is pregnant again so this is her fourth pregnancy in four years and she's 21 and again queen seems to need a bit of help on how to use the pill correctly like I just, I can't, I just don't know. Anyway, she's four months pregnant at her 21st birthday. Four months pregnant when you definitely should not be getting on the piss. But again, she tells no one. She doesn't tell Duncan. She doesn't tell her parents. She just continues partying hard, playing water polo, acting like it doesn't happen. In the documentary, one of Kelly's team of uh, former... Kelly's former teammates, <laughs> um, Stacey Gaylard says that during 1996 at one of the training sessions when they were at the Olympic Park pool, there again had been suspicions among the girls. We think Kelly Lane's pregnant again. And this is amazing to me that no, apart from these few girls, again, no one, even Kelly's mum, who she lives with, is claiming she doesn't know Kelly's pregnant. She's just oblivious now with you with your first baby yes it's harder to see visibly if someone's pregnant with the second or the third the bump emerges so much quicker I find it hard to imagine that the mum especially or anyone any of the adults in her life didn't know she was pregnant especially if she's in bathers at playing water polo anyway they're at the Olympic Park pool at training and Stacy just wants to confirm her suspicions that Kelly's pregnant. So she says, as Kelly was swimming past me, I dunked my head under the water, had a look. And yes, I could see that she was six months pregnant, roughly six, seven months. You know, she was heavily pregnant. In the documentary, again, the New South Wales coach claims he was unaware that Kelly Lane was pregnant. He wouldn't have let her play if he knew she was pregnant. And there's this underlying tone in the documentary that everyone was too scared to ask the lanes, especially Sandy, who's just very defensive, passive aggressive. It it was inappropriate to ask, is Kelly pregnant? I've noticed Kelly looks a bit different. Um, 
And again, Kelly was a bit of a mean girl. Like she's very manipulative. Um, and young girls can be easily manipulated. So I, I don't doubt that if any of the girls had sort of tried to question Kelly about it, she's the head mean girl, you know, she would have just cut them out straight away, you know, and then they were out of the click type thing. Like she was very manipulative, like the type of girl that would sleep with your boyfriend and then make it out, make it out that you were the problem or that you had done something wrong. So I don't doubt that Kelly was a bit of an untouchable person. You couldn't question her, especially her mum. And I think her mum is very much in denial that anything bad would ever happen to the Lane family or that their reputation would be marred in any way. Anyway, by September 1996, she's almost full term and she's starting to get worried uh, because she has her friend's wedding towards the end of September. So she knew she had to be there at this wedding because it was a big event in Manly. Anyone who's anyone was going to be there. Her parents were going, Duncan was going. And if she hadn't been there, it would have been sus. If she'd been there heavily pregnant, the whole charade would have been over. So she knows that she wants to give birth the week before this wedding. So she has a bit of time to recover and then she can show up clearly not pregnant. And she's kind of treating this like a bit of a logistical inconvenience. Like she's trying to, you know, time giving birth into her, into her schedule. So she goes to the ride hospital and she asks them for an induction and she gives them all of this false information. This is her first pregnancy, etc., etc. And they say to her that there's no indication for an induction. So we can't induce you because there's no medical indication as to why. So she goes home, but she knows she has this wedding to go to and she's starting to panic. So three days later, she goes back to Wright Hospital and she is begging them for an induction. She's saying she has serious back pain. She, again, she's just going over the top and they say again, sorry, there's no clinical indication as to why you should be induced. So this time she goes to a different hospital and the lies just become more and more extreme. She's telling them that she was hoping for a home birth, but now she's past her due dates and she needs to be induced and she has a home birth midwife who's going to come in with all the documentation. There is no documentation. There is no home birth midwife. There is no documentation. We know that she has not seen a single medical professional for any of these pregnancies. She's just acted like she wasn't pregnant. Um, but anyway, on the 12th of September, this hospital ends up inducing her and she, give birth, she gives birth to a live born female, which she names Tegan. Now, Tegan, this is the baby that has gone missing. This is the, ba this is the baby as to why she's in prison currently. Um, and now, after she births Tegan, she has a postpartum hemorrhage, which is um, where you lose more than 500 mils of blood following birth. Um, that's the definition of a postpartum hemorrhage. She ends up losing over a litre of blood. So this is quite, quite a major postpartum hemorrhage. Um, and again, she wants to adopt this baby out, but in classic Kelly style, she's put her head in the sand. She hasn't organised anything and she knows that it's a long process. The adoption process is a long process as she's done it with the previous baby. Um, so she hasn't spoken to an adoption agency or anything, but her friend's wedding is in two days and she needs to be there. So she knows she doesn't have time to put it up for adoption. So 
she has to be discharged with the baby this time. So it's the 14th of September. It's the day of her friend's wedding. And she's organised with Duncan that she's going to meet him at his house, uh, pick up clothes and then go to her parents' house, uh, meet there by 3pm where they're going to get dressed and all go to the wedding together. So she begs the midwives and the doctors to discharge her. So this is where it becomes a bit spicy. So the medical records aren't quite clear about what time she's discharged, but this is what we know for sure. She leaves the hospital. She arrives at Duncan's house with no baby. And then they arrive at her parents' house at 3 p.m., her and Duncan, where they get dressed. And at 4 p.m., they're at the friend's wedding. There's footage of them there. And she's wearing white. This is someone that's just lost a litre of blood following... She's just given birth two days ago, lost a litre of blood, and she's wearing white. Like, I don't know if she just, like, shoved five tampons up there, what happened. But anyway, so this is the mystery, is what happened to this baby in the time that it was discharged from the hospital to when she's at her parents' house, the baby's gone missing. We know it hasn't been put up for adoption. Where is it? So put a pin in this part of the story. We're going to keep going. And then we're going to come back to this and the 14th of September, 1996, because this is the day in question. So after the wedding, she just moves on with her life again, as she did with the first baby, the one that she actually put up for adoption. She, a few weeks later, she gets a job as a PE teacher. Um, but in early 1998, Duncan breaks up with her. So this is two years later. Um, she starts a new relationship with a man named Adam. And within months, by August, she's pregnant again for the fifth time. They break up soon after she finds out she's pregnant. And again, she doesn't tell him. She doesn't tell anyone, her parents, no one. And she goes to an abortion clinic in Brisbane in, in February 1999. At the abortion clinic in Brisbane. So she's gone to Brisbane because she's used up all the clinics in Sydney. Like there's, she's going to a different one each time because she's lying each time. But she, there's no more in, in New South Wales. So she has to go to Brisbane. Um, this is how like willing and far she's willing to go for no one to find out about this. Because she's so scared of what her parents might think. So when she goes to the clinic in Brisbane, they discover that she's 25 weeks pregnant. So they're not willing to do a termination. Um, so again, she decides to go through with the pregnancy as she has two previous times. Um, and again, she doesn't arrange anything for an adoption. She just shows up at Ride Hospital in April when she goes into labour and gives birth this time to a live-born male. Now, she's, she's 24 by this time. We're in 1999, and this is her fifth pregnancy and her third live baby, just to catch you all up to where we are, just to reiterate. Now, when she's at Ride Hospital having this baby boy, she denies that she's had any previous pregnancies. She says this is her first pregnancy, so she just shows up by herself again, and said, this is the first time I've ever been pregnant, says some lie that she's from London or something, um, gives a fake address, a fake phone number, again, just a whole bunch of lies. I think probably the only thing she said that was the truth was that her name is Kelly Lane. Um, 
And the day after the baby was born, she makes contact with an adoption agency. And she's very uncooperative with the adoption agency. Again, she's giving them a whole bunch of lies, a whole bunch of fake leads that they can't use because they're not true. Um, and the staff at Ride Hospital ask her, oh, we saw you were here in 1996 asking for an induction. In fact, begging for induction. How's that baby going? Um, and now she forgets that she's told them that this is her first baby. And she's like, oh, oh, not realizing that, yes, your files are still on the hospital system. And then she goes, oh, it, it's at home with its dad. And they think, mm, that's interesting. Because you just said this was your first baby. If it was fine at home with its dad, why wouldn't you just say? Anyway, she leaves the hospital and the baby is put in foster care. And so it's put in foster care until it can be adopted out. But what happens is she's so uncooperative that the fostering agreement lapses. And so the baby goes back into the care of the DHS. So um, the child protection caseworker that's assigned the case is John Borovnik. And he is trying to tie up all these loose ends to get this baby adopted. But again, he doesn't know a whole lot about Kelly because she's being so uncooperative. So he decides to do a, a bit of investigating. And he rings Wright Hospital to find out what he knows about this birth and this baby, etc. And whoever's on the phone at Wright Hospital that day mentions to him, oh, and there's another baby that she hasn't put up for adoption, born in 1996, that she came here begging for an induction, but she didn't end up giving birth here. But we know for a fact she has another kid that's at home with its dad. She's told us this. And he looks up her records and he's like, no, there's no registration of birth for a baby in 1996. And Ride Hospital go, well, she's definitely had a baby because she was like 40 weeks pregnant begging for an induction. So he looks up the Department of Health records because whenever a baby is born, the Department of Health needs to get um, everything for its data collection. But when it comes to the registration of birth, that's up to the parents. So a baby can have no birth certificate, but it can be uh, in the records of the Department of Health. So he sees that it's in the records in September 1996. Yes, she gave birth to a live-born female, but because the registering of the baby is up to the parents in order to get Centrelink payments and whatnot, it's not there. So he gives um, Kelly Lane a call and he's like, hold on, you haven't registered this baby. Where is she? And Kelly initially on the phone with John Brovnik is very defensive. I didn't have a baby in 1996. And he's like, I've got the Department of Health records up. I can see that you gave birth to a live born female. And so then she finally tells him this story that she gave baby Tegan to a family in Perth, but she hasn't heard anything from them. She doesn't know where baby Tegan is. And John Brovnik goes, well, this is problematic because there's no registration of this baby. So he, in November 1999, he reports the disappearance of this baby to the Manly Police Station. Now, the police officer, Senior Constable Matthew Keogh, was assigned the case now, he, if you remember, I said earlier, Kelly's Lane fa Kelly Lane's father, Robert Lane, was actually a police officer at Manly Police Station and Matthew Keogh knew him. And the police investigation at the time um, was inadequate because 
1999, the Manly Police Station was actually going through a royal commission into bribery, drug trafficking and theft. So the Kelly Lane case really just got put to one side. In the meantime, in August 2000, at the age of 25 now, Kelly Lane gets pregnant for the sixth time. And she's in a long-term relationship and they're engaged. So she decides to tell the boyfriend and her parents and makes out like it's her first ever pregnancy. And she describes her dad as being quite disappointed because he, I suppose, wanted her to pursue water polo, to be married first before she had a baby, etc. But um, she, you know, end of the world doesn't happen. It's fine. And she realizes she could have just been honest with her parents from the start. Like once they found out she was pregnant with her longtime boyfriend and she changing, she changes her lifestyle. Um, she stops drinking. She's like, wow, I should have just done this the first time. And she goes and sees Dr. Ferry, an obstetrician in Manly, and he says that she's very cooperative, like an ideal patient. She comes to all of the appointments. She's changes her lifestyle, takes care of herself, takes care of the baby, really seems to care about the baby, which is like in stark contrast to what she's done with all of the other five pregnancies. The other five pregnancies, she's pretended like she isn't pregnant. She's still gone out and got on the piss. She hasn't received any medical treatment. She hasn't even told anyone. Anyway, in February 2001, Detective Keogh asks Kelly to attend the Manly Police Station. So she attends the Manly Police Station by herself because, again, she doesn't want anyone to know. At this point, no one even knows that she's had a baby in 1996, let alone that it's missing. So she goes by herself. She doesn't tell anyone. And this is... I believe because she's so concerned about her parents finding out if she wasn't, didn't have that fear, she'd tell her dad who as a police officer, he would tell her to bring a lawyer, but because she doesn't know her rights, she just goes unrepresented down to the police station. And that's not a good position to be in. Um, pro tip, bring a solicitor with you. If you ever get asked to go down to a police station by yourself bring a solicitor, but she doesn't know to do that because like I said, she's only 25. She hasn't asked anyone for advice in life ever. Um, and Detective Keogh asks, where's this baby? And now she tells a completely different story. She says, oh, I gave birth to the baby. And on the day we were discharged, September the 14th, I gave the baby to its natural father, Andrew Morris who I'd had a brief affair with. And he agreed that he would take full custody of the child. Um, Andrew Morris, not a name we recognise in this story so far, but she claims she just had a brief affair with him. Anyway, in April, she gives birth to a baby girl and her parents are happy, the partner's happy. And as far as everyone knows, this is her first baby. And around this time, the police investigation comes to a halt for about 17 months. Detective Keogh uh, is removed from the case and Detective Richard Gort uh, takes over the case. And Detective Gort asks her to come back into the station for questioning. Uh, again, she goes by herself because she doesn't want to tell anyone. She, again, has put this all in a box and like moved on with her life as if it hasn't happened. But when Detective Gort interviews her and says, where's the baby? She says, 
with its natural father, Andrew Norris. And he's like, hold on, you, did, you told Detective Keo it was Andrew Morris. And she's like, oh, well, yeah, I got it wrong. So he asks more questions about this Andrew Norris and she claims he met him at a pub and she went back to his apartment in Balmain a number of times during that um, period. And so they start a police investigation for Andrew Norris or Andrew Morris um, and they go to the apartment that she claims they had the affair at and they interview everyone who lived there at the time. Um, and this apartment is on um, Beers Beach Street in Balmain and most of the people that lived there at the time were interviewed but in the documentary they find someone that lived there at the time that wasn't interviewed by police and his name is Daryl Henson and he now lives in New Zealand so the journalist uh, producing the documentary actually goes to New Zealand to interview him because the police investigation in 2001 claims that no one that lived there at the time um, has any recollection of anyone called Andrew Norris or Andrew Morris. Like, he doesn't exist. He didn't live there. It's just a fake address that she's given. Um, now, Daryl Henson in the documentary claims he lived in on Biz Beach Street in one of the apartments in 1996, and he doesn't remember a person called Andrew Norris or Andrew Morris, but he can recall Kelly Lane walking home from that apartment at night time. Now, he does say in the documentary, I'd go under oath and say that that was her. But like he says, it was in the dark and it could have been any blonde girl he saw walking home. It doesn't really prove anything. It's circumstantial evidence, I'd say. Anyway, in 2003, um, her and her longtime partner end up getting married. Again, still no one knows that this police investigation is going on, but the police investigation has been going on for a long time now. Um, baby Tegan would now be seven years old if she was still alive. And Detective Richard Gott tells her, we're going to have to take this to the coroner's court because it's no longer a missing persons case. We presume Tegan's no longer alive because they've been searching for Andrew Norris Morris for a long time. They can't find anyone that knows him. They can't find anyone, no one... You know, so, and she is just beside herself. The fact that this is going to go to the coroner's court, that people are going to find out. And to be honest, she seems far more concerned about people finding out than the fact that her child is missing. Like just the fear of her parents finding out is clear. And she's like begging Detective Gort, like, please don't take this to the coroner's court. Like, I don't want my parents to find out. I would never intentionally harm a child. And he says, well, I have no choice. I have to take it to the coroner's court. We, there's a child that's missing. Um, so she ends up telling her parents and the police tap her phone. And there's actually a very interesting conversation between her and her mum. And it's even like her mum is questioning her because she says, so you say you gave the baby to its father, Andrew Morris Norris. Don't you think it's unusual that a 21-year-old boy would just, like, want to raise a child by himself? Like, yes, give me the baby. <laughs> like, it's just strange. And, you know, she, but she's sticking with this story. She's like, yes. And, you know, his girlfriend at the time, Mel, 
So she's, she says her and Andrew were having an affair. He had a girlfriend, Mel, and Mel apparently wanted to have a child, even though they're like 21. And so Mel was like, yeah, sure. Just let us raise this baby from this affair that you had when you cheated on me, which again is very unbelievable, but she's sticking with this story. But it sounds like even her mum is like, I don't know, sweetie, this doesn't sound legit. Anyway, so the inquest into the missing baby, Tegan, starts and in the inquest they have to bring up everything so she goes from not wanting anyone to find out anything to just having to expose herself like about everything um they have to bring up all of her past relationships all of her past pregnancies um and Duncan Gillies her ex who is presumed who she's with at the time, who she says was the father, but then she later says it's Andrew Morris. He has to testify and he has to share very intimate details about how they had sex when she was pregnant and he didn't know because she insisted on doing particular positions during intimacy so that he wouldn't see that she was pregnant. And that's just so awkward because his new partner's there in in court with him and his parents and it's just... Anyway... So the New South Wales coroner ends up concluding that he firmly believes Tegan is uh, deceased and he calls for a homicide investigation. So the, the um, inquest at the coroner's court is concluded that, yes, we believe Tegan is no longer alive. We need to uh, do a homicide investigation. So um, Detective Gort offers Kelly Lane immunity at this point. He says... So she's up for investigation now. He says, I'll give you a deal of immunity. You tell me what's happened to the baby and you can be free of all charges except that of murder. And she says, I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do. So she doesn't take the deal, which, look, I'm not a lawyer, so don't (laughs) come for me, but I don't think that's good advice. I would have taken a deal for immunity because now she's serving an 18-year prison sentence. Like, anyway... So um, it goes to trial after the homicide investigation and again they have to bring up all of the other, well the prosecution brings up all of the other pregnancies she's had which are not relevant to this case but they tie them to perjury charges. So they show by bringing up the other pregnancies and the fact that at each birth she said this is my first baby and just lied a whole bunch. So they're, they're trying to show that she's a liar And the judge of the trial asks the defence team, do you want these charges removed? I think you should challenge the prosecution. And they say no. Um, The defence is, like, the judge could not be any, like, hint anymore to the defence that, like, if you want a a retrial and a whole new jury, I would challenge this. Because now the jury's heard this, all of these lies she's told, when they didn't really need to hear about all of these other pregnancies. It's almost like slut-shaming as a result to try and look make her look bad. But according to the defence team, Kelly just says she wants the trial over with. Um, she just wants to get it over with so they don't challenge the perjury charges. Um, this, to me, doesn't seem like a great defence strategy. I think, I don't know who her lawyers were, but I wouldn't be using them. Um, anyway, so in the trial, this is the story that her defence team give, is that on September the 14th, 
she is discharged from the hospital and she goes downstairs to the foyer area where Andrew Norris, Morris, Andrew Norris, is waiting with his mother and his girlfriend Mel who wanted to have the baby of someone who her boyfriend had had an affair with. Um, and she walks out to the sliding door of the hospital and gives the baby over to Andrew Morris and his family. Um, and then she says she got in a taxi and she went to Duncan's house. And then by 3pm, they were at her parents' house. Now, there's a few issues with this story. First of all, she claims that in the foyer area where she gave the baby to Andrew, there were sliding doors. Now, there were actually no sliding doors at this hospital at all um, in 1996. So, I don't know, again, if that's just her recollection or she's giving her baby away and it's traumatic and she's remembered something that isn't there or she's just straight up lying, which I'm inclined to believe because her re her past record shows she's not, you know, a truthful person. The second thing, she claims she left the hospital at around 2pm, that she was discharged at 2pm so that then by the time she got to Duncan's, it was like 2.30 or whatever, and then got to her parents by three. So therefore, she would have had no time to, if she did take the baby, if she is lying, there would have been no time to actually dispose of a baby's body. Now, the girl that she was sharing a room with in hospital has come forward and says she noticed Kelly Lane left at around 12. So again, the eyewitness stories and her story not quite adding up. So in the end... Um, the jury found her as guilty and she's now serving an 18-year sentence. But in the documentary, they claim that it is a bit of a miscarriage of justice, the fact that she's gone to prison um, when there's no body of this baby, there's no actual evidence that she's done something to this baby. It's all circumstantial evidence and the, the proof of burden is on the prosecution. And I guess whether the prosecution proved beyond a reasonable doubt that, yes, she did intend to murder this baby, I, I'm not sure. And I tend to agree maybe it wasn't a fair trial. But when it comes to what I think happened, I do believe that there is no Andrew Morris or Andrew Norris. I think she probably did dispose of the child whether she actually murdered it or not I'm not sure but I think she definitely did abandon it um but she's been in jail now for a hot minute and you would think if there was an Andrew Morris or an Andrew Norris someone it's this is this story's been all over the news someone would have come forward and said I know Andrew or I am Andrew um and if Andrew Morris was real, wouldn't he just come forward and say, yep, don't worry, guys, baby Tegan's with me. She's fine. She's 18 now. She's doing this with her life. Blah, blah, blah. Like, just the fact that she's gone to jail for 18 years and no one's come forward and been like, yes, I am Andrew. Hi, I'm Tegan. That is my mum. Please don't send her to jail. She's innocent. She didn't do anything to me. But the fact that no one's come forward with this makes me believe that the jury is correct in thinking that, yes, she is guilty of murder. Um...
in the trial also the motive that the prosecution used is that she wants to recreate the childhood she had by having this wholesome family unit in Manly. Um, she basically wants to be like her mum and having all of these kids um, before she was married wasn't what her mum did. So she, it was, the baby was an inconvenience to her and that's why she got rid of it. Um, the prosecution also found a person that they say is the Andrew Morris, but he never testifies in court because he is dropped as a witness in exchange for um, the defence team making a deal with the prosecution to drop one of their witnesses. And the person they drop is Natalie McCauley, who is one of Kelly Lane's childhood friends, and she um, is someone that used to work for the United Nations in child protection, so she says she would never lie about anything like this. She's a trustworthy witness. And... Um, she says that she doesn't think her story was that she doesn't believe that Kelly Lane is lying, that she remembers Kelly telling her, I did sleep with a guy called Andrew Morris. So, or Andrew Norris or whatever. Um, but I don't think that really proves anything. Um, what it does prove is the game playing within the justice system of how the prosecution and the defense can play games with each other and lose witnesses and like that and things become less and less of a fair trial and more of um less about their clients and more about playing games and trying to win um but again the prosecution can't be that serious that that was the Andrew Morris because they wouldn't have dropped him as a witness if he was the Andrew Morris and came forward and said yes I slept with her I don't have the baby therefore she's lying that would have been a valid valid evidence for the prosecution to present to the jury but they didn't so he is actually interviewed in the documentary however and when asked by the journalist you know did you are you sure that's Kelly Lane that you slept with in 1996 he's like I'm not sure it could have been any blonde girl from Manly so look I don't think that's the Andrew Morris I don't even know if she had an affair with an Andrew Morris she might have done she might have just plucked the name out of nowhere. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I don't believe that the prosecution proved it beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, however, I do believe she is guilty. She never took the stand during the trial and she also refuses refused to have a psychiatric um, evaluation. Um, Dr. Diamond was brought in by the prosecution and uh, she refused to speak with him, but from gauging her behavior, he claims that she may have some sort of narcissistic personality disorder with psychopathic traits. Um, again, he never actually assessed her, but given what I've seen from her and I've seen from her mother, I don't doubt this. I think this is a legitimate, um, diagnosis. I think it could be true. Her mum definitely seems narcissistic and we know mental illness is hereditary. I, I, To dispose of a baby, I think, yes, she probably does have narcissistic personality disorder. And a, another psychiatrist who actually did assess her, went into prison and assessed her, says she has no diagnosis that she can formally diagnose, but she has the emotional intelligence of a child. Now, this psychiatrist is female and one thing that's very clear about Kelly is she's very manipulative, especially with women. 
So I think possibly she's manipulated this psychiatrist or this psychiatrist just doesn't seem like, I don't know where she got her medical degree from. I'm not sure, but I don't buy the fact that she doesn't have any mental illness diagnosis given, you know, her pattern of behavior. She's very impulsive. Now, look, being impulsive is not um, a negative thing to, to have. You know, you could buy a stranger lunch. That's an impulsive thing to do. But when your impulses are used in a destructive way, which we can definitely see with Kelly, um, I think there are some underlying issues there. Um, and look, in conclusion to what I think has probably happened, um, we'll never know where baby Tegan is. Kelly's never going to come forward and tell us actually what happened. She's just served this sentence and never admitted to anything. She sticks by this story. She gave it to the baby's father I don't think she murdered the baby. So she's gone to jail for murder because the prosecution made up some story that she like smothered its face or something like this um, before she and put it in the dumpster at the hospital and then just left and went to Duncan's house. That's the theory they have. But I don't think she actually killed the baby. Like it's an odd behavior pattern to put the first one up for adoption, kill the second one and then put the third one up for adoption. I don't think she ever wanted to harm a baby, but I do think this baby inconvenienced her because of the wedding, because she had her friend's wedding to go to. I don't think she has it in her to be a murderer. Um, I think she probably dumped the baby somewhere, just like abandoned it. I don't think she killed it, but I think it was definitely an inconvenience for her, and she just made a very impulsive, irrational decision to just... I'm leaving the hospital. I've got to get to this wedding. I'm just going to put the baby here. Whether it was in the bin, I don't know. But I'm just going to put the baby here and just leave. And this theory makes sense because we know she's not a rational person given her behaviours in the past. She's not a logical person. So we can't come up with some sort of logical answer as to what happened um, to this baby. I think if it wasn't for the wedding, she probably would have put this baby up for adoption as well. Um, and at the end of the documentary, she, there's this scene where the journalist is talking with her and she says, look, I'm actually not sure if his name was Andrew Morris, Andrew Norris, the guy that I was sleeping with, the guy that I gave my baby to. So even she's doubting her own evidence, her own story. Personally, I don't believe there is a person named Andrew Morris or Andrew Norris who has this baby. Um, and since, since then, actually, um, a taxi driver has come forward with, with some new evidence, which the police have said they have no reason to um, regard as false information. Um, a taxi driver has come forward and said that he picked Kelly Lane up from the Auburn Hospital where she was with baby Tegan and on the way he was driving her to Duncan's house in Manly uh on the way she asked him to pull over so she has the baby in the back seat of the taxi with her she asks him to pull over she got out at some bushland left the baby got back in the taxi and the taxi driver asked where where's the baby and she said oh i've just left her with a friend um in the bushland and um then she got to Duncan's house and she left all the nappies and the baby stuff in the back of the taxi. And the taxi driver said, oh, wait, you've forgotten something. And she said, don't worry, I won't be needing that anymore. Um, 
he claims he went back to the bushland and the baby was was left there but there was a stranger nearby and they said oh don't worry I'll I'll look after this baby or whatever um and look it's a strange piece of evidence <laughs> um but it's not completely unbelievable if this taxi driver claims that this woman was acting irrationally just dumping a two-day-old baby in some bushland getting back in the car and saying don't worry I don't need these nappies that's to me that's plausible like I don't she could have done that but it's strange that just a random stranger would say don't worry I'll look after this baby so whether he's just said that because he doesn't want to be the last person to see the baby alive just sitting there wrapped up in beside a tree in some bushland um to say I I didn't just abandon a baby there was someone else there with it but um I do believe that yes she probably did abandon her baby um because she's just prone to doing irrational things like that um I highly recommend you watch the Exposed by Kelly Lane documentary on Netflix. Um, I'm sure they'll do a much better way of explaining it than I've done. Um, I find it super interesting. And like I said, she's eligible for parole next year. So whether she comes out and makes more <laughs> documentaries or anything like this, um, whether we'll ever know what happened to baby Tegan, I'm not sure. They're just my theories. Again, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a detective please don't come for me. You can have a completely different theory from me. That's okay. That's what I find interesting about it is you can have conversations about what you think happened and your friend might think something completely different and it really sparks interesting conversations. So yeah, hope you enjoyed this episode.